Now, you probably never heard of Dr. William Leslie. He wouldn't have even wanted you to hear of him. In fact, he's probably happy that you had never heard of him if you were to ask him that. He was, a, he was a medical missionary who went to the Democratic Republic of the Congo back in 1912. Uh, he went there for the purpose of just sharing the gospel, and so he did. He shared the gospel. He, he taught uh, people there how to learn to read and write using the scriptures, and he met um, medical needs. He stayed there for 17 years, and at which time he had a dispute with one of the uh, chiefs of one of the tribes, and that forced him to leave. And when he left, he felt like an utter failure because he had failed to plant a church. And from his perspective, he failed to even make a disciple. And so he's looking back. He's like, man, those 17 years went real fast, and I didn't make any impact at all. He came back to America. He died nine years later believing that he was a failure and that his time spent in the Congo was a waste. Well, you fast forward 84 years from the time that uh, Dr. Leslie returned to America, and there were two other missionaries who went to that same region of the Congo. Their names were Eric Ramsey and Tim Wilcox. And they're going to that same area that uh, Dr. Leslie was, and they thought that when they went in, what they would find was this unreached people group who they were going to be able to share the gospel with. Well, what they found instead was surprising and startling and shocking. Because what they discovered was a church, a church that was gathering and celebrating and praising the name of Jesus. What happened was, as they discovered, was that soon after Dr. Leslie left, some people got together and they said, you know what? We think that maybe that doctor was telling us the truth after all. And they began a, to meet together and to worship Jesus. Uh, they even built a building in the main village that Dr. Leslie served in, and uh, that, that structure could um, seat 1,000 people. But in the 1980s, the leaders of the church said, you know what, uh, rather than having all these neighboring villages like walk to us to worship here, why don't we go ahead and just like plant churches there? And so they did. And so this church multiplies. They plant eight churches in the, in the closest eight uh, tribal villages. And those eight churches, they formed praise bands and uh, praise teams. And each of them wrote their own uh, hymns to, to praise God. And they would gather together occasionally and they would all be singing these songs. And, and they would take turns allowing each church just to kind of sing and, and lead the congregation in worship. It was truly incredible what happened. But you know what? Dr. Leslie died thinking that he was a failure. He, he never got to see any of the fruit of his ministry. He actually regretted even going in the first place because he didn't think it made a difference. You know, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark, our empowered study, you know, we all know what failure feels like. And sometimes we can be tempted to think that what we're doing, even when we go out and, you know, with these central cares projects, sometimes we don't see the fruit that we're hoping for, and we think that we're failures. You know what? Other times, we really are failures, right? Because we desert, or we betray, or we run away. And this morning, we're looking at, really, uh, a scene of failure. Peter? Failure. John Mark, failure. All the disciples, failures. But you know what this passage, this painful passage kind of reminds us of? Is that even when we fail, if we know Jesus, we're never alone. We're never abandoned. Let's go ahead. Check it out. Mark 14, 43 to 72. Mark 14, 43 to 72. John Mark writes, 
And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the, t- in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him, and they fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, But their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said again to to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. You know, of all the days in ancient history, we actually have a more detailed timeline of what took place in the events of Good Friday than just about any other day in ancient history. Um, but you know, the term Good Friday is kind of a misnomer. It's actually a terrible Friday. Uh, and, and the reason why it got the name Good Friday is because of an antiquated meaning of the term good, also meant back in the day, holy. And it was holy in the sense that this was the day that God had preordained from the foundation of the earth. This was the day that Jesus would take upon the sin of all of humanity and pay for it once and for all on the cross. And so it's holy in that sense. Good? No, not so good. Uh, the result of it, yes, good for us. But we, we left off last week as John preached, and, and one of the things that Jesus uh, 
said is, my betrayer is at hand, right? He knew Judas was right there. He knew what was about to happen. And it shows us that everything that was going to happen on this terrible Friday, well, none of us going to catch Jesus off guard. He's not going to be surprised by any of it. He knows what's coming. And so it happens. What's coming? Well, it's really who's coming at first. And it's Judas. And Mark says, Judas one of the 12. And he adds that little phrase in there just for emphasis, one of the 12. And it's, it's just a gut punch, you know, because we, we'd heard before how Jesus had told them, hey, one of you who's dipping your bread with me in the bowl is going to betray me. And you hear it, but there's like, you're hoping against hope that somehow Jesus is talking metaphorically or something, like somehow it's going to be someone else, like not really one of the 12. And Peter, or Mark here, just puts, puts it out there that, no, it's, it's one of the twelve. It is Judas. And Judas comes, not alone. He's coming with a crowd, Mark writes. And that word for crowd is the Greek word spira. It means uh, one-sixth of a legion. And we know that a legion of soldiers is 6,000 soldiers. And so one-sixth of that, 600, right? So Judas is coming with 600 soldiers to capture Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is not a big garden, okay? It's a relatively small place. And in this small place, in the middle of the night, here come 600 soldiers. And they're all armed with hand swords and clubs because they're expecting a fight. They think there's going to be a battle and they're going to have to wage a war and everything to capture Jesus. Why? Because he's been labeled an insurrectionist. Earlier in the week, they had to capture an insurrectionist. We know, we know just from, from uh, history, Josephus, that they captured an insurrectionist earlier in the week. They actually had to chase him around the court uh, countryside before they actually captured him. By the way, you know this insurrectionist. His name's Barabbas. And so he, they had just captured him, and they're thinking, okay, now there's another fight on our hands to get Jesus. And Jesus even asked them, I mean, are you coming at me like I'm a... A robber or something? What's up with all this? Now, Judas, he runs right up to Jesus. And there's just this false affection by Judas. It's, it's, it's almost like it turns your stomach, doesn't it? How he's going to run up and he's just going to play these games. And he's going to say to Jesus, oh, rabbi. Right? He's just going to, oh, rabbi. And act so affectionately towards him and begin to kiss him and everything. He's just playing games. He's putting on masks. You know, and we've all put on masks at one time or another in our lives where we try to act like we're one thing when really we're something else or we feel one way when really we feel another way. We've all put on masks. And actually, sometimes, like, a church gathering like this, we can be the worst because we want everybody to think that we're so spiritual or so good or we have this Bible knowledge that maybe we don't really have or we walk closer with Jesus than maybe we really do and you know so we don't want to go too deep just kind of keep things on the surface and that way we can kind of keep keep it all good listen Jesus he died to expose all that he, he wants to expose all these masks and all all the games and all this like just be real here's where I'm at do I want to stay here no I want to grow I mean, I hope all of us are able to say, you know, a year from now, I know Jesus and I walk more faithfully with Jesus today than I did last year. I hope that's your testimony. I hope that's my testimony. But sometimes what prevents us from that is trying to act like we got it all together. 
And this is Jude just putting on the mask. Jesus died. You, you know what? You can't actually love people until you move, remove the mask. Otherwise, what happens? You're just trying to impress people. You're trying to please people. Trying to influence people to think one thing when really there's another truth out there, another reality. And so what enables us to love as we've been loved is to set aside the mask, to be real about who we are and who God has made us to be and how, how we're growing. Stop putting on the mask and just find your identity in Jesus. And then there's this greater depth that's able to take place. Judas, it's all about him. There's this selfishness. And so he's wearing a mask and he runs up and he kissed Jesus. Now, in those days, you should know, there was like a whole lot of kissing going on, okay? It was the, it was the culture of the day. They kissed a lot. Um, servants would kiss their masters on the feet, okay? Um, those who were inferior would kiss the back of the hand of those who were in authority. Students would, teach, would kiss the palm of the hand of their teacher. And close friends would kiss each other on the cheek. And this is what Judas does. He runs up to Jesus and he kisses him on the cheek as if they're best of friends, right? And he's just playing the game. And what's interesting here is that this term kiss is actually in the present tense. So you get the idea that Judas is just kind of pecking away. You know, he's just kissing him and kissing him and kissing him and acting as if they're, they're best friends over and over and over again. And Jesus allows him to do it. And so we have this incredible scene here. We have Judas, a man possessed by Satan. And we have Jesus, a man possessed by God. And in this moment here in the garden, a man empowered by Satan and a man empowered by God embrace in the garden. And that kiss, well, it reverberates throughout all of humanity, all of human history. Can feel, can feel the effects of what is now put into place. Now, as he kisses him, it's, it's a sign to the people, to the, to the crowd with him, the soldiers, this is the guy. Whether they really needed the sign is somewhat debated. Some people think, you know, maybe Peter or somebody else might have stepped in and tried to pretend to be Jesus, so Judas wanted to just be really clear, hey, this is Jesus. And that's possible. That might have had something to do with it. More likely, though, the, the more likely reason why Judas was kissing Jesus is basically this is his witness statement uh, for the prosecution against Jesus. So here's one of the 12, and this is his statement that everyone can see, and he's, his just ultimate act of betrayal um, against Jesus. Now, uh, with this, with this kiss, the mob ensues. And Mark wants to paint this picture for us so we can just kind of feel the tension of all these people coming with swords and clubs and everything and seizing Jesus and grabbing Jesus. And in the midst of this uh, just really terrifying scene in the middle of the night, somebody takes out a sword and strikes off the ear of a servant of the high priest and is Mark doesn't tell us who it was. Mark, that's not the point of Mark. He's not trying to lay blame on someone or point out who He doesn't tell us who it was. And in fact, in Mark's gospel, Jesus doesn't even rebuke who did it. No, in Mark's gospel, Jesus rebukes the crowds who've come to get him. He said, why are you coming at me like this? You're coming at me with swords and clubs and all this violence. I mean, 
Everything I've told you, if you wanted to get me, I was in the temple courts. You've heard me preaching. You could have got me all these times. And now you're going to come like this? See, he's just pointing out their hypocrisy. And he's also telling them, and right now, Scripture is being fulfilled. And it was. You know, just moments earlier, the disciples, they couldn't stay awake. And now, well, they're awake kind of. They're awake physically. But they're still asleep spiritually, so they all leave him. They all run. You know, we sang this morning that all our victories are found in Christ, and that's true. But on the flip side of that, all our failures are found apart from Christ. That's also true. And so these, as they wake up to the reality, they're not focused on Jesus. They're just focused on themselves. As they're hightailing out of there, they just want to get to a place of safety, self-preservation. They're deserters, all of them. And just as Jesus said they would be, just as Zechariah had prophesied as well. And so we're told of one young man who was following Jesus and kind of closely, and he gets there, and the, and the guards, they seize him, and somehow he's able to escape, and in the process of escaping, the linen cloth wrapped around him, the only covering he had, falls off in the process, and he's just running away from there, stark naked. Now, who that is, most likely John Mark. None of the other, other gospel writers include this detail. Most likely what's happening here is John Mark is just writing this, just letting us know his own just remorseful testimony of what happened as he just kind of signs this book. And he's saying, hey, I was a deserter too. I left too. I ran away too. You know, Jesus told his disciples numerous times, stay awake. Be on guard, stay awake. Just that night, stay awake, keep watch. And what happened? They're all sleeping. Literally sleeping, physically sleeping, yes. But spiritually sleeping as well. See, to sleep is to stop praying. To stop, uh, no longer recognize the need to pray. The disciples, they stop praying because they're unaware that they're in the midst of a trial. Jesus told them over and over again, but the disciples, uh, they're still spiritually groggy. They, they do not understand what was going to happen in the middle of that night. And so when crunch time comes and they kind of get up, well, they're just going through the motions. And so they're all going in the wrong direction. You know, sometimes we stop praying too because we fail to realize that we're in a trial. And so we're, we sleep because we're, we're asleep to the fact that the principalities of this world, they, they hate Christianity. They hate the gospel. And they just want us neutralized so that we're not even thinking about it. And if we're not even thinking about it, we're asleep. To sleep is also to be unaware of uh, the trial you're in or to accept it as God's will. Right? The disciples, they only heard what they wanted to hear. Their minds couldn't process this idea that God's will could actually be that Jesus would suffer and die, right? That thought over and over, no, it's never going to happen to you, Jesus. I don't, you're kind of crazy. You know, we love you, but this is a little weird. They could never get there. They just could never understand that suffering, the necessity of suffering, this is the point of Mark's gospel, that in this life there will be suffering. And to be a disciple, you must take up your cross and follow Jesus, and they could never understand that because they thought, hey, if I'm walking with God, 
then life is just like a bunch of roses, you know? It's all like a fairy tale. It's so great. And what Jesus is trying to get through their heads is, no, this life is a life of suffering. And, and you must take up your cross and follow me. And he's showing them right now what this is going to look like for them. And by the way, the command remains true for us. It's actually repeated further in the New Testament to stay awake, to be on guard. Why? Because when you're awake, awake to the fact that God is still living and active, and that he wants to use his people uh, to impact people in this world, that that orients you toward a life of prayer, and it prepares you for the suffering that you will endure. Staying awake orients you toward a life of prayer, and it prepares you for suffering. Now, these guys are asleep. So in that moment, they all seem like failures. Uh, they're all deserting. They're all running their own way. It's all self-preservation. So everything that Jesus would go through from this point on, he'll go through alone. He'd go through the kangaroo, kangaroo court alone. And so the trial begins. And the trial is a complete sham, a sham that Jesus would go through alone. And Mark, he wants us, and he's highlighting just how ridiculous this whole trial is, okay? And that's what he wants us to see, that this whole thing is one big farce. And he places the blame on, for this right on the Jewish religious establishment of the day. Okay, I want to just highlight for you guys three ways in which this whole trial that Jesus endured in trial, I'm using the term loosely here, is, uh, was just a joke, okay? First, um, it was a predetermined sentence, okay? You look at Mark 14, 55, all they're trying to do is determine how Jesus is going to die, right? It's a predetermined sentence. They already know he's guilty, and they already know the penalty. It's going to be death. They're, the whole point of the trial is finding a way how they can justify it. That's the whole, it's already predetermined. Now, you and I know enough, we don't have to be legal scholars or anything to know that if the verdict is already in before the trial even begins, it's a joke, right? And so that's what's happening here. The verdict is in before the trial begins. They've already determined he's guilty. They've already determined the sentence. It's crucifixion. It's death. Now it's just a matter of time before they get there. Second, as if all that's not bad enough, uh, the Jewish leaders produce false testimony against Jesus. You can look, Mark 14, 56 through 59. According to the Old Testament law, if you perjure yourself, if you bear false testimony, the, the penalty for that is that you would be taken out and stoned. These guys, they're guilty of perjury. They're guilty of lying. Their stories aren't adding up. You know, they're just contradicting each other as they're trying to testify about Jesus. But what happens? Oh, we just, we're just going to overlook all that. These were the ones who were supposed to uphold the law of Moses, these high priests. But they don't do that. And the Pharisees who are providing the testimony? I mean, these are the guys who are trying to convince everybody how religious they are and how they follow every jot and tittle of the law. And now here, when it comes to this trial and their testimony against Jesus, no, all that can be just set aside. We don't, we don't have to follow it here. No big deal. And the high priest, they'll just look the other way. See, what we're seeing is a complete mockery. It's a mockery of justice. The law being completely set aside. Lastly, Jesus was denied a proper, proper defense by the Jewish leaders. The leaders predetermined the sentence, they produced false testimony, and they prevented a proper defense. Now, something interesting right here, Mark 14, 60. The high priest stands up 
comes forward and questions Jesus. In that day, that was illegal. The high priest, he's the judge. He's not the prosecuting attorney. He was not allowed to question the witnesses. It was not done. It was not heard of. It was not even legal. But here, in this case, it doesn't matter, right? And so that's all set aside. Hey, all their witnesses who, who they have coming up to testify against Jesus, they can't get their story straight. They're contradicting each other. So the high priest, he steps in. He's like, I'll just be the prosecuting attorney, attorney myself. And so he asks him about the things that he's done, and Jesus is just silenced. And then he asks him about who he is. Is it true that you're the Christ? You're the son of the blessed? Is, is, is this true? It's interesting what Jesus says, isn't it? Just two words at first. I am. The Greek, ego ami, I am. Not I am he. Not yeah, I'm the one you're looking for. Yeah, I'm that guy. No, he says simply, I am. And you know why that's significant? So you remember back to Exodus 3, 13 and 14? Moses is talking to Yahweh. And Moses is talking to Yahweh and saying, hey God, what am I supposed to tell the people about you? Like who you are? Because the Israelites in that day, you know, as they're in bondage and slavery in Egypt, they believed that God was the God of Abraham, that he was the God of Jacob, that he was the God of Israel. What, what they struggled to believe was that he was the God in the present. Because they thought, if, if God was really God now, if he was the God of us, why would we be like this? How could his children be enduring this? Yes, we know he was powerful yesterday, but what's he doing today? And so Moses said, what am I supposed to tell them about who you are? It's not that people needed a name for God. They had names. They had Yahweh. They had Elohim. They, they, they knew things to call him. And he says, you tell them, I am. I am. What's he saying? He's saying, I, I am. I'm present. You, you can't just kind of block me off in, in some kind of time period and just kind of set me back there. I, I'm, I'm just as present today as I was then. I'm, I'm sovereign over everything that's going on in your life right now. Everything that's happening to the children of the Hebrews, I'm sovereign over all of that. I am. And so here Jesus is, and he says the same thing. I am. I'm sovereign over all this. I'm, even, in this even in this sham of a courtroom, this kangaroo court, when everything is stacked against him and the, the, the sentence is already predetermined and there's all kind of false testimony going on and uh, the the judge begins to take on responsibilities that he's not even allowed to take on Jesus says I am I'm sovereign I'm powerful even in this and in case the religious leaders missed what Jesus was saying he just has a little fun with them and then he and then he quotes one of their most revered prophets Daniel he says, hey I'm, by the way I'm also the one that Daniel prophesied about you know, I, he, the one that Daniel had that whole vision about, that's me. And so one day, uh, you know, you will see me again. And you'll see me coming in the clouds of heaven and seating at the right hand in the place of power. You'll see all that. Just as Paul would later write to the Philippian church that one day every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And so what's he doing? He's just telling them of their own judgment. Because while they might one day acknowledge it, for them it will be too late. They will acknowledge the truth, but it will be too late and they will spend eternity apart from him alone. And so while Jesus is going through this trial alone, they will one day spend eternity alone. And as Jesus is going through the trial, Peter, well, he had left, but he had come within just eye shot to try to watch what was happening. And he melts down, just like Jesus said he would. You know, it was Peter, by the way, we know from the other gospel writers, who struck the sword or struck the ear off the servant of the high priest. And he went out and he was the one who, I mean, can you imagine? There's 600 soldiers coming to get Jesus. And this guy, he's so brave, he's got like one little sword, and he runs out at 600 soldiers to defend Jesus and chops one of the ears off. I mean, he's that brave. He's running into 600 to try to take them all on. And now, just a couple hours later, he's folding like cheap lawn furniture in front of the interrogation of a teenage girl. I mean, it's how fast just everything changes. And his first response is typical, you know, when you're lying. He just, he just kind of pleads ignorance. I don't even understand what you're talking about. You know, uh, what does that even mean? I, who is Jesus, by the way? I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. And so he just pleads ignorance. You imagine he's frustrated. He just wants to see what's happening. Uh, and I imagine the frustration grew because even though he denied the servant girl, she's going around to all the people standing by and she's like, I'm pretty sure he was. You know, he might be saying no, but I'm telling you, this story doesn't really add up. I mean, look at him. He looks like a Galilean. He talks like a Galilean. He's not from around. Have you seen him before? I'm pretty sure he's with Jesus. And so then Peter, he's denying it again. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. His second denial. And by the third time, it's now the bystanders are jumping in too. And they're saying, oh, you have to be one of them. I mean, you are a Galilean. Your accent gives you away. We know you're from Galilee. That's the region where Jesus was doing a whole lot of his ministry and where he called most of his disciples. Yeah, it makes sense. You have to be one of them. And by this time, Peter says effectively, okay, if my language is giving me away, let me give you some language that might not give, you, give me away. And so he begins swearing. I don't blankety-blank know the man. But more than just swearing, he's also calling down a curse on himself. Do you catch that in Mark's gospel? And that word for calling down a curse is the word anathema. What, what Peter is effectively saying is, hey, if I'm lying to you guys right now, may I become an anathema. In other words, may I be cursed and condemned to hell if I'm lying to you. So this is how strong Peter's denial is, Right? He's swearing, he's using all, you know, he's just cursing like a sailor, right? And, and he's doing that, and at the same time, he's saying, you know, I deserve to be damned to hell if I'm lying to you guys right now. Did he convince the crowds? Don't know. Doesn't matter. What matters? The rooster crowed the second time. And that rooster crows the second time, and Peter has this flashback to just what had happened that night. What Jesus had told him, now you're going to deny me. Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And his mind flashes back, and he just breaks down, and he weeps bitterly. He sobs heavily. You know, Jesus faced his persecutors alone. He took on the weight of our sin alone. He died alone. He went through all of this agony alone to do the will of the Father so that you and I never have to be alone. 
not even in our worst moments. We never have to be alone. See, here's, here's the thing. The disciples, they, they were all betrayers, right? That's why when Jesus said, hey, one of you is going to betray me, they're all asked, is it me? Because they all know their hearts. They all know how they've thought about betraying, and now we've seen it. They've all run. They've all deserted them. Every last one of them, they've all left. They're all betrayers. They're like Judas in their own way. They've all betrayed. They've all deserted. They've all run away, and we have too. We've had those moments where we've betrayed, we've deserted, we've run our own ways. We've all been there. But you know the difference between Peter and John Mark and the other disciples compared to Judas? Repentance. Peter, he sees what he's done and what is it? he just breaks down and he cries and he's sobbing right there. You see the heart of repentance immediately. And so he can say something like, I deserve to be damned to hell if I'm lying about this. And Jesus would come back and say, Peter, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Now you're not going to hell, Peter. You're going to feed my sheep. And John Mark, he runs away naked, and he writes about it for us. The lowest moment of his life, something that, you know, you or I just assume could just kind of get buried and never brought up again. No, he writes, he records it for us. And what does Jesus do? What does God do? He allows John Mark to write one of the Gospels. All the disciples, they all deserted. But, they, but we see their stories of repentance and how God uses them. Judas, he stayed alone. He stayed alone and he died alone. He took his own life because the inner agony was just too much. So here's the encouragement. Don't stay alone. Right? You're hurting, you've, you've done something wrong. Don't stay alone. Pursue a relationship with Jesus. Don't stay alone. Pursue a relationship with Jesus. Because the truth is, we've all done things <coughs> that we just sob over, right? We're embarrassed by. We'd weep over it. We hope never come up. We've probably all been in hard situations where instead of engaging the hard conversation, having the hard conversation, or you know, being a part of it, we just kind of run the other way and hope that hey, maybe it'll just kind of magically disappear and I won't have to deal with it. We, we, we've all been there. We all have failures that we can point to. Just like Dr. Leslie, how he'd point to Congo and he'd think, yeah, man, this defined my life. I spent 17 years in some remote tribe in Africa, and it was all for nothing. I was a failure. But here's the thing. God, in his grace, he has a way of reaching back into the failures. He can reach into Peter's denial, and he can now use it for good because we all see how we've denied. He, he can reach into John Mark just running away naked, and he can use it for good because we all know how we've run away. He can reach into Dr. Leslie, who he left Congo after this incident, and he's, nothing happened there. And we can see, no, 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 there was a lot happening. You just didn't see it. God is so good. He reaches in to even the most painful, hurtful moments of our life, and he shows us that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's always through him. And that's why we praise him and we praise him alone. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness to us. That even when we were enemies, the Bible says, that Jesus died for us. 
even when we betrayed, even when we ran away, Jesus died for us. So God, may we run to him, pursue that relationship with him, and get to see how he writes his story on our lives as we share the goodness of your gospel and impact others. We need your help to do this. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.